right, welcome back to the Joe Cozo Show. I have a special guest, someone that I've been wanting to have on for a long time, Nick Giordano. Nick, it's a pleasure for having you here. I'm glad you invited me. I yeah. look forward to the discussions. Yeah, absolutely. So give us a little background. You are a professor at Suffolk Community College right here on Long Island. I've been a professor 15 years teaching political science. 15? Try, trying to change the young minds that were brainwashed in the K-12 through system. Not that they were brainwashed, actually. They didn't really learn much when... They get to my class, that's when the learning begins. You know, it's funny that you say that. When did you notice, because you know, you're, you have the pulse, and I see what's happening in my daughter's college. She goes to the University of Alabama, and I see how their curriculum is so leaned towards woke America, left, and you see this critical race theory that's being always taught and I can't believe it when she has, when she brings back, she goes, can you believe this? Look what they're asking me, look at this stuff. And it's, it's unbelievable that it's actually happening. And I feel like, as myself, I fell asleep at the wheel. You know, I think most Americans have. Especially Republicans. Republicans like myself, you know, you just want to hang out. And I said this yesterday on my show. We hang out. We're drinking beers on Sunday, Saturday, having barbecues. You don't realize it. And you have the left. They're basically surrounding us. And they're forming this, like, army to change America. Now, you, sat, you just said just now, yeah, you know, they come in and I, I try to, you know, they're brainwashed when they come in, but when did you see that this was actually happening? Was it when you were in college and when you were actually studying, or was it you know the first day when you became a professor? Well, it's interesting, because when I was in college, a lot of the professors were obviously left, but they had a respect for difference of opinions. They had a respect. I would always push back against my professors, but they all loved me because of that. They all loved the debate, and they encouraged debate. But when I started teaching, I started noticing something probably within a year or two. So in 2006, I started, and within a year or two, I realized that these students are coming in. They have no knowledge of American government. They have no knowledge of the Constitution, never read it before. And how can you have all these different positions on the issues, say government should or shouldn't be doing anything, if you don't know why the government even exists in the first place and what the intent of the founding fathers were? So I decided to implement the citizenship exam on the first day of the semester for all my classes and, and give them a constitution test where I give them the, the Russian constitution. I play it off as if the, it's the United States constitution. They failed the citizenship exam. They can't identify that they're not reading the United States constitution. And it really illuminates how little they actually know. And then the question is, well, what are you learning? Well, hold on, hold on. It's, it's actually actually amazing that you do that. I've never seen the citizenship exam. If you had to rate it on a diff, you know, a difficult level, on a one to ten, how would you rate it? But just common that you would assume that people have common knowledge of the, you know, the different justice system, the uh, the, you know, the branches of federal government. What would you put it at? Two to three. I mean, it, 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 the citizenship exam is fairly easy. It's about the basics of American government. You know, when was the Declaration of Independence written? Who's the Speaker of the House? Who has the power to declare war? I mean, these, these are things that should have been instilled within the students, and yet they get them wrong. Name one writer of the Federalist Papers, and they still they'll get it wrong. And it, it's absolutely shocking because... How can you be a citizen of this country? Well, you can't be if you fail the exam and you're an immigrant coming here. But those Americans that have been living here their whole life, it's like they're strangers in this country. They don't know the country. And how can you gain an appreciation for concepts like liberty and freedom and the Bill of Rights if you've never been taught it? And that's the big problem that we're seeing today. That's why the woke mobs have grown so large. That's why it's enveloped our entire society and everything's become political. 
The left likes to operate based on emotion. It's a smart tactic to use because when you get emotionally engaged, uh, you're 10 times more engaged. Whereas if you detach yourself, come at it from the perspective, uh, an emotionless perspective, then you start to open your eyes, you start to rationalize, use logic, and things make much more sense. Unfortunately, common sense doesn't exist in today's day and age. I, I, you know, the question that I want to ask you, because you're, you're talking about the left and how they, you know, how, how what they're doing, and these kids, they don't even realize anything, like you said, they don't even realize the background of America. They're just being taught right now to hate America, in a way. But one of the questions that I, I would love to ask you is, you hear the Democrats saying, oh, the party switched. Because if you go back to, say, when the Constitution was written, you go back all the way to the 1700s and the Revolutionary War, and you have the Federalist Papers, you have slavery that the Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party, right? There's so many great things that people are actually doing in America that they don't actually learn in school. But that was the party of the Republican Party. And you had the Democrats who wanted to secede the, the, the nation. They wanted to... In, you know, installed each state, new state that was being into the union. They wanted to make it a slave state, and that hence the Civil War. But then how is it that black Americans who, Republicans that were fighting side by side, how is it then that black Americans in today's society are all Democrats? When it was the Republicans, right, that were side by side risking their lives to save this country and to give them the equal rights that every human being deserves here in America? Well, that's a great question, and it's one of the biggest myths that exists within American politics that there was this party shift. There was no party shift. Now, academics will come out and say, well, the party shift occurred with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Linda B. Johnson pushed it through. Well, no, if you look at the data, that's simply not true. First of all, it was mostly Republicans that actually voted for the Civil Rights Bill. Uh, a fair amount of Democrats voted against it. In the House and the Senate. Correct. Where you start to see the black movement towards the Democrat Party, you actually have to go back to the 1930s. That's where we started to see it take hold. And what happened was you were going through the Great Depression. And you had FDR campaigning on the idea of this the New Deal that he's, he's going to bring money, he's going to be bring jobs. At the same time, the black population started to migrate out of the southern states, and they started to go in the urban centers where the political machines were. Uh, you look at a place like Chicago that's been controlled by Democrats for, I don't know, 100 years or so. And that's where you start to see the black population shift, where they move more towards the Democrat Party. At the time, you have FDR promising to help all these people, and you also have the urban political machines where you can't do anything as a Republican in Chicago, so you have to join the Democrat Party. Then you factor in the indoctrination over the last 70, 80 years in these urban centers, and that's how we started to see the black shift towards the uh, Democrat Party. Now, when you look at this idea of the party shift that the Democrats love to throw out there, well, that's not true if we look at it when the Civil Rights Act was passed, and even before that, we could go the emergence of the Dixie Crap Party, you see that pretty much every single Democrat remained a Democrat with the exception of one person in the House of Representatives, can't recall the name off the top of my head, and, and Strom Thurmond, who became a Republican. He switched parties and became Republican. But the majority of the South was still heavily controlled by the Democrat Party. They were still holding the governor's offices, the local legislative branches. They were holding the congressional seats in both the House and the Senate. 
the South started moving Republican in the 1990s. That's where we started to see it. It started to slowly change in the 1980s, but the 1990s is where the Republicans really turned the South. And the reason that they were able to turn the South is because you had this new brand of Republicanism that existed. The idea of small, limited government, the idea that government was growing too large, even though it still grew under Republicans, too. We can't, you know, lie about that. Uh, but that's where we started to see the South really shift was in the early 90s. That's where Republicans gained a stronghold. In. And what about in the 60s? And, you know, because in my in my view, the Democrats, they have such a such a propaganda machine. And they and they actually when they're playing this whole political game, it's like they're playing a game of chess when Republicans are just playing, you know, basically backgammon, check, whatever you want to call it, right? But what they do also, in my opinion, and I want your view on this, is the government assistance that they give to black Americans. And I feel like that they do that to keep them in check so black Americans need them, want them to do certain things. They rely on them. And if they grow too much, then they're not going to get the government assistance. And I feel like that happened. That switch was in the civil rights movement in the 60s, late 60s. Is that something, too, that maybe why Democrats are staying? Because you don't you don't really see black Democrats actually still switching over. You know, I, I you sit there and you try talking to some black Americans and like, why would you want to stay in a party that? you know, was the party of slavery, Jim Crow laws, who invented the KKK, right? Why would you want to still stay with that? And they still look at you like, what are you out of your mind? You're a Trump supporter. I don't want anything, you know, you're a racist, you're this, but you're that, white supremacy. But it even goes back before that because you could look at the Republican Party, take Mitt Romney, the presidential candidate for the Republican side in 2012, take George W. Bush, take, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan. They were all accused of being racist and Klansmen, essentially, even though it wasn't true. But the left is really good with language, and, and language is so critical because the left has figured out a way to actually control the narratives, and, and that's the power that they have. And, and what they've done is over the course of the last half century is they've indoctrinated people to believe that the Republican Party is the party of racism. You say it often enough, and eventually people start to believe it. And I think that's what you see in the black communities. When you look at these major urban centers and you ask yourself, are they better off today than they were 50, 60 years? And the answer is no, absolutely not. They're, in fact, much worse off than, than they've ever been in these communities. And yet these people will still elect the same political leaders. They'll still stay with the same political party. But it also human nature plays a role. How you're raised and how you're influenced. So LBJ's Great Society program did decimate the black families. There is absolutely no doubt about it. But it also decimated white families as well, because if you look at it, the white people are actually the largest of the ones that use those programs. When we look at this, what the government did, it, it's pretty sophisticated, because if you have to rely on government, are you going to bite the hand that feeds you? And the, and the answer is no. You're not going to vote against your interest. And we see this time and time again. You know, you look at the totality of the United States right now. We're, we're headed off a fiscal cliff. The def debt is enormous. We spend money like it doesn't even matter anymore. And sooner or later, it's going to become a real problem. We're going to have to tackle the debt crisis. But here's the thing. Nobody's going to vote for the candidate that's honest. I mean, let, let's be honest here. You have two candidates running for office. Candidate A tells you life's going to be more difficult, that we need to pull up our bootstraps, and we're going to need to cut every single budget by 10 15%, that we're all going to feel some type of pain. Candidate B 
sits there and accuses Canada Day of wanting to hurt veterans. He doesn't care about kids and wants to take money away from the schools. He doesn't care about the elderly and wants to take money away from health care. And not only that, he's going to raise your taxes. And Canada B says, I'm going to invest more money in schools. They use invest. They don't say spend more. I'm going to invest more money in infrastructure. I'm going to invest more money in the health care systems. Who are you going to vote for? Are you going to vote for the person telling you they're taking stuff away from you? Or are you going to vote for the person that tells you they're going to give you stuff? It's true. And that's just natural human emotion. Then you factor in the f- when we're raised. Usually we register with the political party that our parents are, are registered with. And that's how we start to shape our political ideas. Unfortunately, what's happened in America is that we become so ideological. We become so beholden to the political parties, which Madison did warn about in Federalist 10, that we simply go down a line and vote whatever our political party is, rather than actually be independent and figure out which candidates best serve our interests. And and that's become a big problem because every single person that's watching right now, I could guarantee you they'll go to the polls and depending on their political party, they're just gonna vote straight down the line. They probably never even heard of half the candidates that are running for the local offices or maybe statewide offices, yet they'll vote for those people based on political party. So unfortunately, that's how we identify ourselves. And that's become the problem. That's why we're so ideological today. That's why we're so partisan today. And then, you know, obviously there's other factors, social media coming into play and factionalizing us even more. The internet has been a complete disaster when it comes to political ideology. And it put us in this situation today. Do you you think, give me your opinion on the, like Twitter, Facebook, and what it's done to this society. Well, it's just ingrained us in factions even more. So it used to be that we kind of kept our political ideology to ourselves. I mean, we talked about it with a handful of select people, those that we're close with, but we didn't allow it to infect every aspect of our life. The politics was just a small sliver, as it should be. I mean, life is much more important than just politics. And then you have the rise of social media. Well, actually, let me go before that. You have the rise of the cable and the 24-hour news networks. Then you have the rise of the internet. Then you have the rise of social media. And what happened was we started to express our political opinions on every single forum that allowed it. Where we used to keep these things private, now it was open to the public. Now, when social media first came about, it was kind of innocuous. You know, people would post pictures, get in touch with what I'm doing during the day. Yeah. But then quickly, because it's just how we're built as human beings. We, we start to infuse our ideology into everything, and that's where you see the increasing factionalization. Just go on any news website, and I tell people, I tell my students all the time, never engage in the comment section. Never engage. By the third comment, they're not debating the merits of the argument that's being made in that article. That, that was the whole point for the comment section, was to engage in debate. Say, you know, the author makes good points here, here, and here, and then someone will rebut, but think about it this way unfortunately by the third comment it's f you i hope you die (laughs) and then the person will follow up well i hope you die and your family dies too and and you see us devolve into our animal instincts and in social media it's gotten only worse where people will cut off anyone that have any disagreements of opinions they'll simply unfriend them i mean we saw in 2016 we saw divorces, and the reason for divorce was because one, the spouse was supporting Hillary Clinton, the other person was supporting President Trump. And, and 
That's how factualized you could be married for 40 years, but that doesn't matter. Now who you support as a political candidate, that's the be-all, end-all. Isn't it so so true that you say that? It happens. Forget about just the spouses. You go to Thanksgiving dinner, and you have your family members, and, you know, some of them are Trump supporters, and some of them are Hillary Clinton supporters, and then the next thing you know, you don't even want to go to Thanksgiving dinner anymore. And it just, as soon as you sit down at the table, it becomes a political debate. It's amazing that how America has transformed into that. It's all about politics. All of a sudden now, you know, you sit there and say, well, I, I, I can't hang out with that person. Why? Eh, they, they, you know, they lo- they, you know, they're extreme left. Or I can't hang out with them. They're a Trump supporter. They're a white. Whatever it is, you support Trump, you're a racist. You know, and, no, and whatever it's it is. craziness. It is craziness. I wanted to talk to you about the school systems, though, because I really feel that that's where, that's the... Where, where everything is beginning and how this thing has actually transformed. When I was in school, especially elementary school, and you're learning about history, we called it social studies here when I was in school. You know, you again, you would learn about slavery and you would learn about how America came and beat the British in the Revolutionary War and how they came together and they wanted to abolish slavery. And it was all about the Republican Party doing those type of things. And when it came to the point that I had to choose... Okay, what party are, you know, what, what do you want to declare? And I remember it being, are you Republican or do you want to be a Democrat? I would think, why would I want to be a Democrat when they were the people that were enslaving people? When they were the people that were treating blacks so poorly? So I, you know, initially just said, hey, listen, I'm a Republican. There's no way that I, I want to be associated with that. But I feel like that now has changed. Right? Well, and- it has. And the education system has changed. So when you look at, like, grades K through maybe sixth, seventh grade, the beauty of of the way we taught American history was we taught the totality of the American experience, both the good and bad. We taught about slavery. We we taught about segregation and Jim Crow, but we didn't attach the party labels in, in, you know, grades kindergarten through sixth, seventh grade. And the reason that we didn't attach party labels was because we didn't want to cloud people, young minds, we didn't want to cloud them. and, And develop we want them to develop their own opinion and and then when you get in the upper years especially in high school that's where you start to learn about the difference between democrat or at least used to about democrats and republicans but the education system doesn't has completely collapsed it doesn't work because it's not that necessarily the indoctrination that's problem it's that for years students haven't been learning i mean if you look at the national report card which is issued by the department of education every single year the proficiency levels in every single subject are horrible and they've been that way for the last you know 30 years where students that are graduating senior gra- seniors graduating are only 23% proficient in american history they're only 25% proficient in math 22% proficient in Why science. is that, though? Because I, I look at it, there's a number of factors. First of all, the government got more involved in education. The government got more involved in developing curriculums. Now, you have a bunch of suits, basically, in Department of Education that never actually served in a classroom, that don't understand the dynamics of the classroom, that don't understand the needs of the students, that are now dictating to teachers what they have to teach. And that's part of our problem. Another part of our problem is the bloatedness of the administrations in public schools, and not just public schools, private as well, but mostly public schools. So academic institutions, K through 12 and in higher education, 48% 
are full-time teachers. 48%. The rest is all support staff and administrators. How can you call yourself an academic institution where the majority of your staff aren't even teachers? It's true. It, it truly boggles the mind. But we also have to look at the family structure and how the dynamics of the family structure have changed. So education used to be that you go to school, you go home, there's going to be a parent home, and the parent's going to do homework with you. It's going to help reinforce things that you may have learned during the day. The parent's going to teach you about American government and politics. Today's day and age, parents have taken a hands-off approach, not just today, for the last 30 years, because now both parents are usually working or you come from a single-parent household. So if both parents are working, by the time the parents get home, cook and clean and you know give kids baths, whatever they got to do, they're tired. They don't feel like sitting doing homework. And they say, I pay my taxes, and the school's supposed to be the ones educating my children. And so they had good faith that schools were actually doing this. Unfortunately, they didn't do their job of reinforcing things they learned or shooting down what schools were teaching that may be a little bit more nefarious. And so we started to see this shift away from the idea of teaching American government and history probably around 2000 for a more global approach. That The idea wasn't nefarious when it was first instituted in the K through 12 system. It was based on the people living in the United States their whole lives. They're going to learn about America. They're going to learn about the institutions. And so we need to focus on the rest of the world so that they gain an appreciation for other places around the world, so they understand world history as well. Unfortunately, students aren't getting that knowledge of American government. And so you have a whole generation that wasn't properly educated on American government, hence the reason they say the Constitution's old and outdated, that the Founding Fathers are all racist, and all the nonsense we're seeing today. And that really changed the framework of education. Then you factor in how teachers have become activists. So again, you had the great retirements of teachers take place. It's a good place. point that you just said that. They have become activists, yeah. like sports uh, athletes as well. But well, yeah, but you're 100% right. Ideology has infected every aspect of our society, including the workplace. We are now driven by politics as opposed to doing what's right and doing our jobs and putting politics aside. So in 2003 to 2010, you had all the old school teachers, the baby boom generation, basically retire. And you have a whole bunch of new teachers that weren't properly trained. They may have taken a lot of education courses. They're much more advanced when it comes to differential learning, when it comes to the idea of inclusion curriculums and different methods of teaching. However, they don't have the subject knowledge that they lack in the subject area, and they think that their opinions are, are what matters, and that's what they're teaching. Instead in the of being classroom. factual, they're using their opinions Absolutely. As, as to teach these students. 100%. And also, it seems like to me, that they don't what they're teaching because they lacked all that education that they were supposed to learn like you learned or i learned what they were learning is actually to hate america and how racist america is throughout the whole system and i, I believe that's what critical race theory and how that got implemented so you have this whole generation that is learning that way of thinking and now teaching that way of thinking is that what basically is happening and that's part of our problems when we look at critical race theory when it was first developed it was a college level elective that that students would take particularly law school students or, or those that are in pre-law 
They would take this elective, and I have no problem with that. I mean, that's the way college is. You you get exposed to various ideas, and adults should be able to come to their own conclusions. And it's an elective, like you said. Correct. You, you can either do it or you don't have to do it. Correct. But then the universities changed, and they became totalitarian. I mean, that's essentially what they are. You have to understand, the academics, it's like the, the largest group think that could possibly exist out there. The, many of them are extraordinarily arrogant. They think just because they have a PhD that they're right on all the topics. And, you know, I like to say that most of the bad ideas that we see today and most of the policy failures have come from academia. And, and they have. Just look at history and it will show you that those that think they're the smartest are the ones that are usually wrong. Me, I give my opinions, but that's exactly what they are. They're opinions. And I never give opinions in class. In the classroom, there I'll give facts. And if I do happen to give an opinion, I'll let my students know. This is an opinion. You don't have to agree with me at all. And, and you know, I'll try and push back any which way I can, whatever their ideology is. But the colleges started developing speech codes. And then you had the students and faculty protest speakers. You said speech codes? Speech codes. What does that mean? Things you can and cannot say on campus. That if you violate the speech codes, you're going to be penalized. Now, these are, well, the harbingers of free speech. I yeah. mean, you go back to the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, free speech on college campuses was the essential component. It's what made colleges, the universities. Vietnam and all the, 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 all the protests, everything. Absolutely. Yeah, right? That was the whole point of it. And that was part of the college experience. But now they, were impl they started implementing these speech codes defining what you can and cannot say. And it was all based on the idea of offensiveness. Who gets to determine, though, what's offensive? And I constantly tell my students, in my classroom, there are no safe spaces. I make it my mission to offend each and every student at least once during the semester. <laughs> and if I don't offend them, I'm not doing my job yeah, I because I'm that. supposed to get them to think. So they start with these speech codes. Then we see protests against college speakers and the banning of college speakers from Ben Kansas. Shapiro, we saw that happening. Ben Shapiro, you had Ann Coulter. They all happen to be right. Condoleezza Rice. I yeah. mean, you know, someone that was high up in our government under the George W. Bush administration, brilliant woman, and she's getting banned. So it was like, well, what's going on here? You know, why are the colleges doing this? Unfortunately, it started to go outside the academic bubble. And we started seeing it within society. And that's where critical race theory is so dangerous. And, and I just want everyone to know out there, a lot of the districts are teaching critical race theory. They may not call it critical race theory. Instead, they'll go under the guise of diversity, inclusion, and equity. I call it diversity, inclusion, equity, die, because all societies will die if this is the crap you're putting out there. But they'll usually do it under disguise. And so why are we teaching kids as young as preschool, that everything is based on skin color. Everything has to be looked at through the prism of racism, that everything has to be looked at as groups. And how destructive is that to a society in the long term? Someone that's 20 years old taking a college elective can come to their own conclusions, can either agree with it or, or try and dispute it and present their evidence. But when you're teaching it to four, five, six, seven, yeah. eight, nine, ten-year-olds that haven't developed the critical thinking skills, that's where it becomes indoctrination. And this is a poison that's being fed to the kids because essentially what critical race theory does is it teaches that America was founded on racism. It goes with the 1619 Project, that every institution is a racist institution. 
and they ignore all the progress we've made, that America was founded in slavery. And, and that's completely false. Slavery. It was inherited. The, I believe, you know, in my opinion, and I don't mean to cut you off there, but this was under British rule when, when America was first basically created with the colonies, the 13 colonies. And slavery came into it with British rule. It, was, it wasn't until then when we won that Revolutionary War that then we create, then the Civil War came into effect that we actually fought. We're the only country that actually fought for black rights, right, to, to end slavery. Well, not the only one. And, you know, Europe did too after a period of time. But I'm talking about fact. first. Correct. I mean, we certainly were. But when we're looking at it, when, when we're examining it, what the left has done successfully is they make it, and no, no pun intended, as if every issue is black and white, as if it's that simple, that the uh, American founding fathers, they were all racist, they were slave owners, and the country is... And the people that wrote the Constitution had slaves, so if they're writing the Constitution while they were having slaves, that means they're looking at it, they were writing it in a skewed way of thinking, and that way of thinking is basically white supremacist. Correct. They'll point to the three-fifths compromise, but what they don't tell people, because once again, it's a false history that they're putting out there, is that slavery was actually heavily debated when we were trying to figure out the Constitution. At the Constitutional Convention, slavery was a big part of the discussion. And there were many founding fathers that were completely against the idea of slavery, and they looked at it as a stain. In fact, some of them warned. I mean, you have Governor, I believe it was Governor Morris of Virginia, who said that the issue of slavery is going to haunt us for generations to come if we don't abolish it at that moment, 1787, at the Constitutional Convention. You had other people, you know, two-thirds of the founding fathers either didn't own slaves, would renounce slavery at some point in their life, or would free their slaves upon their death. Now, if they had no issue with slavery, why would they free their slaves upon their death? Why would they join abolition societies? Benjamin Franklin was part of an abolition society. He led the one in Pennsylvania. You had Alexander Hamilton, who led an abolition society. John Jay who criticized the idea of slavery. Patrick Henry said slavery was a lamentable evil. So when we look at it, that's real American history. But it was complicated at the time because in order to secure our independence, we also needed the South, where the South's economy actually ran on the idea of slavery. It was part of their economy. Most of the Southerners didn't have slaves. It was the wealthy elite that did. But the South, we understood that if we outlawed slavery, and I'm not saying it's right, but when we're trying to apply 21st century standards to people that lived in 1787, you can't really do that. No, you can't. And, <laughs> and, and it was the norm. Yeah. It well, was the norm throughout the world, to be honest with you. But it actually wasn't the norm, because what they don't tell you is that in 1780, Massachusetts outlawed slavery. This is seven years before the United States Constitution was even developed that in other states were starting to abolish slavery, or at least those that were born. Uh, so if you had slaves and they had a child, normally that child was considered a slave. Well, several states moved to change that, that any child born to a slave is considered a free person. So we already had this anti-slavery movement that did exist in the United States that just gets sugarcoated, gets thrown out. Nobody looks at that. I mean, the whole reason why the Civil War, and I, I said this earlier before, that was... The new states that were forming, there was the debate, were they going to be a slave state? Were they going to be a free state? I mean, so your point is correct. You know, there was already debates going on. Hey, listen, we're going to expand this country. We're not going to expand it. You know, half of the country saying 
and make it a slave state. And then the other half was like, well, wait a second here. We want it to be a slave state. You know, you had people down in the South, they were trying to capture Cuba just to make that a slave, you know, uh, uh, um, territory. So they can do that. So your point is valid. Well, and if we just look at the Constitution, Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, and I believe it's subsection 1, the very first provision is Section 9, it states that slavery cannot be abolished before the year 1808. Now, this completely gets ignored when people are talking about the Constitution, but I found this fascinating. Like, first of all, why 1808? Did they, like, put years on a dartboard and just, you know, (laughs) that's the date? And when you start to research it, you'll find that the founding fathers were keenly aware of this concept of nationhood. And it's going to be a very difficult concept to obtain, but it's going to be necessary for our survival. If you go as a tribal society, all tribal societies fail, just look at Afghanistan, you know, several thousand years of history. So they needed to create this sense of nationhood. They understood that as, a, as we're a new nation and we have all these different peoples with different ideas, different philosophies, different religions, that they're going to be the ones to determine whether we succeed as a nation or not. If we ban slavery outright from the beginning, already it's going to divide this country and it's not going to succeed. They believe that by the year 1808 that we would have achieved that nationhood status where we're unified and then we could tackle the issue of slavery. And start weeding it out. the South would come aboard. Unfortunately, it took up until 1865 and the Civil War and the deadliest war in American history to actually make that come to fruition. But once again, if our founding fathers found no problem with slavery... Why would they list that it could be outlawed in 1808? If they thought slavery was morally acceptable, then then why even put a provision in the Constitution? So it shows that the Founding Fathers understood the immorality of slavery. And if you look at letters from George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, they talked about its immorality. But we don't want to have an honest conversation in this day and age. Once again, it's the left controlling the narrative. It's the leftist totalitarianism that exists. We can't have a rational discussion. So if I say that New York State, in New York State, I forget when we abolished slavery. It was, I believe, the early 1800s, maybe 1810s or or 20s or before that. Who knows? Um, But New York State, they outlawed slavery amongst a certain age. If you're a certain age and you're too old, you're you're still going to be considered a slave. If you're under this age, then you're considered a free person. People look at that and they'll be horrified. Well, why didn't you just free everyone? Well, because if you're a certain age and you can no longer perform any type of real work and sustain yourself, you can't become a free person. Okay, it's at that point where you're too old, and so whoever the quote-unquote slave master is would now have to take care of you and support you. If you're young enough and you can go and sustain yourself, you're going to be considered a free man. Once again, nobody looks at the complexity of the issues in this day and age. They just go by the talking points of what they hear from their own factions. And again, going back to social media, that's only increased because all we do as a society, or at least the majority of people, is they seek out information that validates their opinion, that tells them they're right. So when someone comes across and disagrees with them, well, I, I did my research. All these sources are telling me I'm right. All these sources are telling me my positions are correct. So F you, you don't know what you're talking about. And that's where we see the destructive nature of social media, where it's actually just 
giant groupthink bubbles all over the place. It's the factionalization. And the one thing that's going to destroy this country is the factionalization and oversimplification of everything. If you talk to any kid today that is anywhere in the, you know, fourth to a college student, and you ask them about Native Americans, they have this warped view as if all the Native American tribes were just peaceful, and then these white imperialists came over and destroyed their tribes and everything. They're not taught that, no, it was actually very complicated, and Native American tribes were actually killing each other. There are many tribes at war with each other. Take someone like Andrew Jackson, who goes down as the worst great president to exist because under his administration he did great things but he also had the trail of tears where he kicked the cherokee indians out of north carolina and that's where they had to cross through the appalachian mountain killing thousands of them and everyone says well andrew jackson hated native americans well no that's not true that's a lie that's a myth did he hate some of the native american tribes and the answer is yes should the trail of tears have happened the answer is no it should have never have taken place in fact the supreme court ruled against the tra- uh, appalachian uh, trail and they said that you can't remove the indians the indian removal act the supreme court f- ruled in favor of the cherokee indians so everyone says that Andrew Jackson hates Native American tribes no there were actually several indian tribes that benefited heavily under the jackson era Um, especially the ones that helped with the Battle of New Orleans in 1812. But we don't teach this type of complexity in our history courses. We just try and teach, you know, Native Americans were good, white people that came over were bad. I mean, you know, let's simplify it to to the 10th degree. And and that's the way we see education today, and that's not education. I want to now fast forward here to recent current events. Not so much in current in 2021, but I want to go back to, say, 2015, 2016. Why did or why do Democrats despise Donald Trump as much as they do? I mean, you, you know, I'm sure you researched. You, you're on and Republicans, top of, yeah, and Republicans. Why? What was the whole reasoning for it? You know, because he came onto the scene. People thought that he didn't have a prayer. They thought that he wasn't even being taken seriously. And then all of a sudden, he caught fire like lightning strikes in a bottle. <laughs> That's for sure. Listen, I'll be the first to admit, I, I did not think he would be successful. In fact, when he announced his candidacy, I said he's going to be out by uh, Iowa. He's not even going to make it to the first caucus. Um, I was completely wrong, obviously. And it's because Who I, did you want in 2016? Well, it's not that I wanted, actually, I was supporting Senator Paul first. I thought that he is someone that has principles. He stands by those principles. I may not agree with him on every single issue, but on some of the big ones, like the economy, like debt, like congressional spending and waste and fraud and abuse, I'm more in line with him than I am with a lot of the Republicans. But here's the interesting thing about President Trump. So President Trump was Democrat most of his life. Yeah, I, I mean, know. that's the amazing part. He donated with Hillary Clinton, he donated to her campaigns. He, he donated to all of them. Not only did he donate with them, he schmoozed with them. Yes, he he went all the to pictures. all their parties. They went to his parties. They all came to his wedding. And they loved President Trump prior to him. And the black president. community. Correct. If you, you know, hip-hop artists, all of them, they wanted to be like Donald Trump. They had him in all his music videos. Absolutely. Listen to the rap songs. And I also, I also say this, too. You have a left media outlet, meaning NBC News conglomerate, who made a fortune of having Donald Trump on their network of The Apprentice, right? Not I mean, you think that they would ever have him now? But not only did they have him on his network with The Apprentice, they also courted him for years because Donald Trump was a tabloid sensation here in New York. He was always that type of newsmaker. He had a persona about him 
that people gravitated towards. But then he announced he's running for president. And all of a sudden, everything changed. I mean, you know, there are people that just totally despised him that used to be friends with him. So why this change? And it, like I said, it includes establishment Republicans. And it's because President Trump isn't one of them. President Trump doesn't follow the political rules. President Trump doesn't bow to the establishment of the powers that be. He's an outsider, and he's undeserving of the position of the presidency. He doesn't act like president. He isn't dignified enough. See, in these people's minds, they have this warped view. They're the ruling elitist. And anyone that comes in to to threaten that, they, they attack. And that's exactly what President Trump did. Consider in 2012, Mitt Romney got the Republican nomination, and the Democrats were able to successfully typecast him as this out-of-touch elitist, that he's this Mr. Burns-type character, the the (laughs) Simpsons, that he's this evil rich person that has women in binders and puts dogs on top of his car. And Democrats were successful in pushing that narrative. Now, factor in President Trump, whose net worth, if you believe Trump, he's close to $10, million, $10 billion. If you believe Forbes, it's closer to $3 billion. Either way, he's a billionaire, and yeah. I, I would take his money in a second if he wants to offer it to me. But you take President Trump, and here's a guy that they can't typecast. Even though he has 10 times more wealth, literally, than Mitt Romney, here's a guy that ha- relates to ordinary people. What was the relation, though? What, what, what would you say... You know, watching him and, you know, that statement that you just made relates to ordinary people. Give me an example of that. Okay, so the number one reason that people gave for voting for President Trump, the largest part of his base was actually blue-collar people. And the number one reason that they gave is they said that he understands me. He understands my issues. He understands my problem. So when Mitt Romney was running for president, Mitt Romney would talk about the entrepreneurial spirit of the American people and the free market enterprise system. Most Americans have no idea what the hell those things mean. No idea. President Trump, do you like high gas prices or low gas prices? Do you want to pay more for food or less for food? <laughs> he speaks the common language. That's true. And, and that's what made him successful. But not only does he speak the common language, he says things. He has zero filter. And he'll say things that sometimes they're crim- cringeworthy. I'm not going to sit there and lie and be like, everything he said is always great. But he'll say things that people are thinking. And, and so take the debate. He's debating Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton's accusing him of not paying taxes. And President Trump turns around and says, well, if I didn't pay taxes, I'd be smart. Now, the left went crazy about this. See, he's not paying taxes, and he's defrauding the system. Ordinary people are like, yeah, you would be smart. I don't want to pay taxes either. You probably got a good accountant. Who's your accountant? I want that kind of accountant, right? They attacked President Trump for eating fast food. Now, think about... The media bubbles, the the elitist, the royal elitist bubbles that exist, they're, they're sitting there mocking this guy for eating fast food because he's a billionaire. Why isn't he eating his cranberry walnut salads and, and you know, arugula and all this other stuff? Well, no, President Trump, he likes McDonald's. Likes McDonald's. I mean, you he know, has a diet to coke. each his own. I, find I would be eating surf and turf every single night if I had his money, but I don't. Uh, but... He likes fast food. And when the media and the press pounded him for that, 
Well, aren't they insulting pretty much all those Americans that eat fast food maybe once a month or in some cases once a week and in other cases maybe even every day? You'll die if you eat it every day, but, but there are Americans yeah, that Yeah, because there's people that day. could only afford that type of food, right? You know, well, and, they and can it, afford it, produce, but they choose to, to, to make it quick. Because it's more tasty. Yes, <laughs> and it's convenient, honest. and it's two seconds. It you is. go in, you eat, you have a meal, and that's the end of it. Correct. And you probably got, you know, you get two cheeseburgers for less than $10. Well, that's the thing. And so you're mocking this guy for eating fast food. Well, aren't you mocking all those Americans that eat fast food as well? That's a good point. Then you look at the idea of jobs. I mean, you look at the free trade agreement, NAFTA, that was signed under the Clinton administration. Initially, it was good for the United States. You know, the You can't deny that. It did have some positive benefits. But one of the drawbacks, and I never understood with these stupid trade agreements, there should be a clause. Every three years, they have to be renegotiated because economies change. And so we started to notice that manufacturing was just leaving the United States. And when you have someone that's been doing the same thing for 40 years, it's very difficult to train him in something new. Very difficult to train him in something new. And so you have the forgotten worker, the forgotten middle class that existed and they were left behind and they were told by Democrats and Republicans, your job's gone, get over it. Figure out something else to do. President Trump comes along and what does he say? I'm gonna bring manufacturing back. I hear you, I understand the difficulties, the challenges in your life and I'm gonna bring it back. And that's why people gravitated towards him. He was more like the ordinary everyday man and understand that President Trump is a political animal. He is very calculated. And if you go back to his interviews in the 80s and 90s and on Donahue, on Oprah and all of them, he was always talking, he's always laying seeds and he's always doing Correct. that. Correct. And yeah. he was always talking about how he relates to the, the limo drivers and the door people more than the Manhattan elitist. Yeah, 100% a- and right. And that's why Republicans in the establishment and Democrats despise this guy. He's crude, he's crass, he doesn't speak the language of politics. And why are the Americans gravitating towards I want to go into because we you know we have limited time here I could talk about this stuff all day long with you I want to talk about you mentioned this on your podcast and your podcast is called the PAS report right what does that stand for politics analysis and strategies I love it or political analysis and I gotta tell you I'm a big fan I told you before we started the show how much I actually love listening to you I bumped Mark Levin because I'm starting (laughs) to listen to your show because it's just rich with knowledge one of the things, I believe it was the second to last show that you just previously did, not the last show, but you actually actually touched on it too, was you're talking about the national strategy for counter-domestic terrorism. Correct. And, you know, I heard about it and I, you know, I heard Merrick Garland, he came on, but I didn't really dissect it. And you really, you really went into it. And there, there's your podcast, right? Oh, it's coming up. It's and, a beautiful podcast, as yeah. Trump would say. <laughs> It's a beautiful podcast. There it is right there. The PSA uh, podcast. You can listen to it on Apple Podcasts. This report, and if we can play, Eric, if you could get the the Four Pillars video, if you could play that up next. Sure. I want to play for you a clip from Merrick Garland. I'm going to play two, I want to play two clips. The first one is him talking about this, and he's talking about the Four Pillars of the counter-domestic terrorism. So let's play that, and then we'll come back, and we'll, I want your opinion on it. In response to these many and serious challenges, the national strategy today seeks to confront the threat from all angles. The strategy rests on four pillars, each of which is essential to support the whole. First, our efforts to understand and share information regarding the full range of domestic terrorism threats. Second, our efforts to prevent domestic terrorists from successfully recruiting, inciting, and mobilizing Americans to violence. 
Third, our efforts to deter and disrupt domestic terrorist activity before it yields violence. And finally, the long-term issues that contribute to domestic terrorism in our country must be addressed to ensure that this threat diminishes over generations to come. As a professor, as I consider an expert, you know, especially on this document, you read it, it was 31 pages, I believe. 31. You read, I mean, made me read it over the weekend as well. Because <laughs> I knew that. Uh, Everyone well, should be reading it. Everybody should be I reading mean, it. There should be wall-to-wall coverage on the media, and, and nobody's really reporting on it. Break it down for us. Tell us what exactly is that, what he's just saying there. And he talks about a lot about white supremacy. Obviously, that's the main, I feel like, theme of the whole of course of you know the, the the biggest threat so to speak actually you know what play that clip real quick can you just play that uh, clip um i believe it's only 30 seconds merrick garland basically talking about the biggest threat and that of course is white supremacy here let's see if we could uh just pull that up really quick according to an unclassified summary of the march intelligence assessment the two most lethal elements of the domestic violence extremist threat are racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists and militia violent extremists. In the FBI's view, the top domestic violent extremist threat comes from racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically those who advocated for the superiority of the white race. Talk to, talk to me about yeah. this. Well, that's just a bunch of nonsense right there. Not, anyone in the FBI that has any type of self-respect and integrity will say that that's a lie. Because it is. Uh, in fact, notice how the government isn't providing any of the names of these white supremacist groups that exist. What's their membership roles? How many people do they estimate to be part of these white supremacist Where they're at, their headquarters are? What the command and control structure is. <laughs> right? they, they don't break it all down. Now, when they went after the Italian mob, we got a breakdown of every one of the crime families here in New York and who, who's the boss of bosses, who's the capos and the soldiers. You make that such a great point. And it's such a great point. It is. When we look at groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, we get the whole breakdown of the terrorist organization chart. We get the whole like what are the threats the command and control what are their operational capabilities here we have this vague talk of white supremacy which is interesting at a time when white supremacy is actually at the lowest point in american history and we have the most open and tolerant generation to ever possibly exist but yet that's the guys that this document's going under for domestic terrorism now why when- though why why do this why have this you know the country is this divided instill fear instill fear because the country is more divided than ever and by putting out something like this putting out a document like how they did and now just labeling one group as the biggest threat domestic threat as white supremacist you're putting that basically every single white person including himself well under the guise under the umbrella of white supremacy because like you said there's no nothing specific. Well, here's the thing. If I say that there's an estimated number of KKK members between four and 6,000, now that's Southern Poverty Law Center's numbers. They're far-left organizations, so it's probably even less than that. But let me just take their numbers. Four to 6,000 members of the KKK in a country of 329 million people. Go back to 1920, where there was four million members of the KKK serving in the highest level positions within government in a country of 129 million people. It's good. It's and, a good point. And you tell me... It's a great Where's this point. explosion of white supremacy because I don't see it. And, and that's the problem. They make it as if there's been no progress and they completely ignore the progress, but they have to because it's all about power. It's all about control. It's about expanding the government apparatus. And so what this document, National uh, Strategy for Countering Domestic Terrorism, does is it 
says if you express any type of racist sentiments, which are never defined what racism is, if you just express anti-government, anti-authority sentiments, once again, never defined, I could criticize government, that could be deemed, this whole show right now could be deemed anti-government and anti-authority because of the topics that we're talking about. And then they talk about incitement, that if you're engaged in inciting domestic terrorism that they never define, you yourself could be labeled a domestic terrorist. And so if I put out a, a tweet or something that criticizes government, am I now going to be labeled a domestic terrorist? And you see that this is the most dangerous document because essentially what it wants to do is bring the tools from the international war on terror to use on the American people. Not only do they want to bring those tools to use against the American people, they want to expand that government apparatus. They want to expand those tools. And I warn everyone, it's not about liberal, conservative, Republican, or Democrat. This can be used to target anyone. It almost sounds like a totalitarian government that they're trying to establish here. It's essentially what it is. When you break it down in the simplest form, that's what it does. That if you criticized government at all, well, you could be an enemy of the state. What what does that sound like to you, right? What does that sound like? Sounds like communist China. And that's where they're taking a lot of what communist China has done and bringing it here. If you look at the four pillars that the attorney general was just talking about, if you look at the first pillar, well, they say they want to incorporate the private sector. They want to partner with the private sector to be the ones that are on the front lines to determine whether or not there's incitement of domestic terrorism going on. So what does that mean? Well, it means that they want the social media companies to only increase their monitoring and surveillance of the American people. It means they want the banking sector to funnel and go through your transactions to see if there's anything that they could turn over. To you the said you said this on your show, and I believe and, you know, and because of my criminal background of being criminal attorney, you said, well, it's much difficult in your show. You said to get a warrant. Mm-hmm. To get that and have to go through that and get a warrant for and 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 have to subpoena all of these records when they could just have these companies just give it to them. Correct. Right. I mean, think about it. So if I put out a tweet that is goes against the lockdowns for the COVID epidemic and, and goes against the mask, government's never going to be able to get a warrant to surveil me. They're never going to be able to do that. It's much easier to just get social media to turn over the information to the government voluntarily. And so what they're doing is they're creating this surveillance state apparatus that that the private sector is going to be the eyes and ears. And and that's in the first pillar. If you look at the second pillar, it talks about controlling the flow of information. And this I find really concerning. It talks about the supply and demand of information available on the Internet that leads to radicalization. Well, what information are you talking about? And basically what the government's saying is that, well, we have to remove this information. So you're talking about massive censorship, that the government needs to control the narrative. And in the document, it talks about those that perceive government overreach. Only the government's going to determine when it's overreaching and when it's that's not, China, because so they're sick. always so honest with us. But we see the massive censorship that's going to take place under this document, where the government's now going to control information that's flowing out. In the third pillar, it talks about recruiting individuals to help. And basically, that's just recruiting neighbors to spy on each other, neighbors to rat each other out. Look at all these internet sleuths that anytime something happens, they're all trying to, and this is both on the right. Sounds like Iran. Both on the right and left. They try and be like these internet sleuths thinking that they're detectives and trying to find information. 
And it becomes really dangerous because what you're trying to do is divide our society. And we saw this during the COVID pandemic. Why divide, though? Why? Because so what's the end game? It's easier to control a divided society than a unified society. Okay, so in America, the idea liberty is supposed to be in our DNA. It's supposed to be inherent. Unfortunately, it's obviously not. COVID proved that, that the amount of power people will give to government in the name of a crisis is extraordinary. And so let's create this fear of white supremacy, that this is the biggest, greatest threat we face. Not Chinese aggression, the communist China's aggression, not them wanting to become a superpower by 2049. It's going to be this amorphous idea of white supremacy that's never defined as the greatest threat to democracy. We're constantly hearing the threat to democracy and democratic values. And so we're going to violate all democratic values in order to stop this threat. It's crazy. Give us the power and we're gonna keep you safe. And we see this time and time again throughout our history where in return for safety and security, we have to give things up. Well, here they're just throwing it out there that in order to be safe and save yourselves from domestic terrorism and white supremacy, give us the power and control. And that's what it all comes down to. Now in this document on the fourth pillar, it says that, and this is where the left, once again, language is very important. In the fourth pillar, it talks about policies that we need to essentially further regulate guns and have an assault weapon ban, that we need to incorporate things like CRT in the classroom, that we need to provide equity in with, within society and, and perhaps start a minimum guaranteed income, uh, the basic guaranteed income that the left is talking about. Now, Sounds they, like socialism. But when it is socialism, <laughs> that's for sure. But when you're looking at this document, I want people to think about this logically. What this document is saying, well, if those are the solutions to combat the long-term threat of domestic terrorism, if you oppose those solutions, are you not a domestic terrorist? <laughs> think about that. And that's where you see the dangers lie. This is nothing more than a political document designed to get in a far-left agenda and give the government more power. Get in line control. or you're going to get in trouble. Here's the short-sightedness of the left. They ain't going to be in power forever. Sooner or later, Republicans will get back in power. And everything, I always warn my students, everything one administration does, the next administration is going to take that and expand on those capabilities. It's not like the government just returns the power to the people. That well, that's the thing, and once. you saw that in COVID. Correct. The more power that these governors, say Whitmer in Michigan or Governor um, Newsom in California. We call them emperors. Yeah, emperors. Because that's what they Once are. you gave them the power, you're never going get, to get them to give it back to you Correct. So, so easily. They'll give some of it back. But the next crisis, they'll take even more. And that's what you see, the growing power and the apparatus of the state. And that's what has me concerned, because I don't know what this country is going to look like 5, 10, 15 years down the road. I don't know who's going to be in power 5, 10, 15 years down the road. But the more power that we're given to these executive branches, both at the federal and the state level, the more dangerous the situation becomes, the more we're moving away from the intent of the founding fathers. And unfortunately, you have Congress and a whole bunch of state legislative branches that have abdicated their responsibilities and have basically allowed the executives to do whatever the hell they want. And this, once again, it's very easy to see how this ends. History is replete with examples. What is it? Because we only have a couple of minutes left here. How does it end? Authoritarian state. Countries quickly devolve into authoritarian states. And people need to understand it is much easier for a country to go from a free country into an authoritarian state than it is to go Reversed. from an authoritarian state to a free country. And Plato, you know, Thomas Jefferson hated Plato. He called, you know, he thought he was... A, 
didn't know what he's talking about or ridiculous. But Plato did argue that all democracies will ultimately end in tyrannies because people will freely and willingly continually give government more and more power that when you turn around and look at it, you no longer have control. I mean, if the government's in charge of your education and your health care and your shelter and your food, what control do you really have over do, life? Do you see, and again, we, we only have a couple of minutes here, do you see that this country would lead to a civil war? Do you see that happening? No. Not at all? No. Why uh, is that? Because it's too complicated. When we look at the original civil war, it was a north-south divide. When you look at the American Revolution, because Britain still calls it a civil war, that's, you know, essentially to them, that's what it was. There was a, a Britain and colonies divide. Here, it's ideological, and on every single street block, everyone has different political opinions. And so you're not going to be going house to house fighting with your neighbors, people that you've had beers with, people where your kids play together. In addition, we look at the newer generations, and let's just say that many within the new generation, they don't have the same type of grit that our grandparents and great-grandparents have. They, they didn't have the challenges that those generations face. And you just cut off their internet access for a week, many of them will be crying. They'll be crying. They won't know what to do with themselves. Yeah, no, I agree. What do you, uh, what, what do you do, what do you read? Like, you know, do you read the newspaper every day? What magazines do you read? Where do you get your information from? Like, give us a little bit about you really quick here. Again, we're just at, at the hour break here. So what is it that you do? You wake up. Well, unfortunately, and I don't advise people to do this because it will drive you mad, but I, I look at anything and everything. I'll watch CNN, MSNBC, Fox News. I'll read the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Washington Examiner, the you. Washington Times. <laughs> well, I want You have get, to, though. Once again. You it, have to it, know the enemy. And it's trying to understand the other side. I mean, if I'm going to debate the other side, I need to know what their arguments are to I agree. be able to take them on. And we have to educate ourselves and understand that not everyone has all the answers, you know, and that's part of the problem that we're so ideological today. There were times where Democrats had all the powers and there were times where Republicans had all the power. Yet here we are 50, 60 years later, and we still debate the same exact issues. And so obviously they don't have solutions to all the problems that exist. And that's the main takeaway people should get. Government is an incompetent entity. It's designed that way. It's supposed to be slow, awkward, and inefficient. And I always say it, it can't even fix potholes right. <laughs> Being on Long Island, you know what that's yes, like. Yeah. But it's designed to be this incompetent entity because that's the protection. A more efficient government means that it's much easier for them to abuse the rights of the people. A less efficient government means it's more difficult. Unfortunately, when it comes to the rights of the people, government has become much more efficient because they have a compliant society. Government has created many of the problems that we face today, and it's not through nefarious intent. It's just because, once again, they're incompetent. Last question. What's your best book that you've read recently or, you know, in its in you're Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius. Meditations. It's actually a really phenomenal book. He's a philosopher that a lot of people don't talk about, a Roman emperor that existed. And he's someone that, if we look at Plato's idea of a philosopher king, not that I agree that philosopher kings should rule, uh, but he, there really is only two people that even come close to Plato's definition of what a philosopher king is, and it's Cyrus the Great and Marcus Aurelius. 
Um, I, I think The Meditations is a really good book. Yeah, but. send that to me. Send me that link to that. I'll look into that. I love reading. I definitely will. Yeah, and real, give, real quick here, give us your coordinates. How do people get in touch with you? How do people follow you? What's your Twitter handle? Are you on Twitter? Everything is PAS Report. So PAS Report. Just go to the PAS Report. Dot com. You can find me there. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, PAS Report. It's on um, Apple Podcasts if they want to listen to it. If, what happens if they have an Android? Can they listen to it on? Spot it. We're on every major podcast. Well, not we. It's just me. Yeah. <laughs> but every major <laughs> but podcast. But it's great. I got to tell you, it's great. I love it. Every I love podcast everything. platform we're on, I'm on. And just type in Professor Nick Giordano and I'll come up all over. And I got to, well, you know what? I said it was going to be one. I got to ask you this one last thing. You're all over Tucker Carlson. So I want to congratulate you on that. Thank You're you. a true patriot. How is it being on Tucker? I love him. He's my favorite. You know, that's my only thing. You know, it's okay. You know, I feel like it's back in the 80s when, you know, you would watch what's happening or watch a certain show that if you don't watch it right there, there's no DVR and you're done. You're not nah. going to be able to get it. So. I make sure that I always watch Tucker, and I love that you're on, and you and you kill it when you're on Tucker Carlson. How is that experience? Well, it's an amazing experience, and you know, I never thought I would actually get on his show, and and somehow we connected, and I did end up on his show. But more importantly, I have a profound respect for him because there are many that try and frown upon community college professors, and they sit there and like mock it. Oh, you teach at a community college. When you look at the Ivy League institutions, many of the so-called experts, the some of the biggest morons that we have in society, they've been wrong about everything. They're in their own little bubbles. At the community college level, we're in touch with reality because of the makeup of our student body where, you know, 40% of our students may be Democrat, 40% Republican, 20% could care less. They don't know what's going on. They don't want to know what's going on. And so we understand reality much more than the four-year university bubbles. So it's great when I get to go on there, and I love the feedback I get. Oh, yeah. At least most of it. You're you're amazing. Well, I want to thank you. I want to welcome you to come on any other time. You're more than welcome to. I love, like I said, I could listen to you. I listen to you every morning anyway. (laughs) So having you in person is just, you know, it's just a special thing for me. And I really want to thank you. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so listen, we're going to wrap it up here. We'll come back, and, uh, you know, we'll see you soon. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. But that wraps it up for another edition of the Joe Cozo Show. 